Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, assistant editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Nate Clem, author of Open, Living with an Expansive Mind in a Distracted World. Nate holds a PhD in political philosophy and serves as one of the founding partners of the meditation training company, Mindful. Open, as the title suggests, explores how we can be more open to new thoughts, ideas, and experiences in life. As Nate argues, modern life's ceaseless barrage of information and noise makes us shut down, hide from challenging ideas, and forget the value of exploration. Open offers analyses and solutions to opening back up. Nate, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me, Caleb. It's great to be here. Of course, you know you, you you've written you know a a book, sort of self help it help help sort of a self help book, but but I think I think it's really so much more than that. Uh, you you include uh, you know studies from 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 scholars, uh, in addition to you know really interesting stories about your own experiences doing uh, you know different meditation techniques and 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 other things, which I'm excited to to get into, such as uh, you know experimental ketamine treatments, which which are really fascinating to to learn about. Uh, but you know, before jumping into the book, you know, you have a pretty interesting story how you got to to, to doing what you did. So I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Absolutely, yeah. As you mentioned, I write technically in the self help genre, but I like to think of it as almost like philosophy meets self help. Self help, and I think the reason for that is my background. I got very interested in philosophy when I was in college. Decided I want to be to become a professional philosopher. So I decided to get a PhD, went to Princeton, got a job as a philosopher, as a professor for about four years. And then something interesting happened, which is I started to realize that the direction I wanted to go in philosophy was really toward what we might think of as living philosophy, kind of in the tradition of maybe Aristotle, Thoreau, Emerson, the idea of really embodying and applying these ideas to one's own life. And there actually wasn't all that much interest in academia at the time for that project. And so I ended up leaving my job as a philosophy professor, political philosophy, uh, started a company called Life Cross Training, which is now Mindful, and started really exploring what I might think of as technologies of the mind. So things like meditation, yoga, different breathing practices, basically trying to understand what are the practical techniques that we can use to change the way we experience life, to answer some of the philosophical questions that I had been grappling with, but not at a conceptual level, at more of a practical, embodied, sort of lived level. So that's what brought me to what I currently do, which is write about things like relationships and distraction and mindfulness and open this new book is really the the latest manifestation of that project. So the world can be a very dangerous and scary place. Uh, easy to to try and shut things out. Why should we still strive to to be open to these potentially frightful things? Yeah. Well, this is in some ways the essential question that I was grappling with when I decided to write this book. I guess I should introduce here the key distinction behind all of this, which is the difference between living open and living closed. And I love this distinction. And I, I really love the idea of writing a book about such a simple distinction, because I think it really does capture the essence of the modern predicament. So in my terms, when we are closed, we're living with this attitude of withdrawal or contraction, where when we meet things that maybe don't feel so good, discomfort in the body, challenging emotions, scary thoughts, uncertainty in the broader world. We have this tendency that I think we can all relate to where we seek out quick, short-term hits of pleasure. And nowadays, the way we primarily do this is through our devices. So we're feeling a little bit of afternoon anxiety, and all of a sudden the phone comes out. We're not even thinking about it. Next thing we know, we're on Instagram, and then we're on Facebook, and then we're on the news site or whatever it might be. But there's this tendency now that I was seeing in myself so deeply to essentially shift toward directly encountering some of these emotions and mind states and pulling out our phones instead. So that's kind of how I think of closure. And then the opposite of that opening 
it does involve a more direct confrontation with some of the scarier aspects of our experience with emotions or thoughts or uncertainty. And so it, it's somewhat paradoxical. Like, why would we want to do that? Because in some ways it's less pleasurable. It doesn't feel as good as being on Instagram. But I think, you know, if I were to make one argument as to why we should take opening seriously, it's that when we do, there's a kind of freedom that we experience when we're able to stay present with some of those difficult mind states that we don't have to shut down and contract so often. We can sort of explore the world with a little bit more equanimity, with a little bit more courage, a little bit more uh, grace, I guess you could say. So in some ways, that's the argument for opening that what's on the other side of these short-term pleasures like screen addiction is freedom. And that's a value worth pursuing. So just sticking with uh, this, you know, this, this notion of, of screen addiction, you know, why are screens in particular so damaging and how do we combat this, this addiction? Because, you know, this might sound counterintuitive, but like on its, on its face, if I sit down on my phone and I'm, you know, reading the New York times or I'm reading, you know, something it doesn't seem that much different than sitting down with a, with a book and reading it yet. There's something about sitting down with a book that feels so much more gratifying. So, you know, what is it about screens that screens that, that you find to be so troubling? Well, I love the, the plug for books here on <laughs> a podcast dedicated to books. Yeah, there is something different, I think. And there's something really interesting about screens that is happening at a very subtle level. So it's sometimes hard to see. First thing I would point to is 2007 is the, the year when we get the smartphone, when we get the rise of social media, et cetera. And when you look at behavioral health data for adults, teenagers, kids, something starts to change in 2007. All of a sudden, we have this teenage mental health crisis. All of a sudden, like rates of burnout and depression go up. And it's hard to directly link that to smartphones. But I think that's really interesting. So that's kind of like a macro point there. On the more personal micro level, though, one of the things that I, I think makes this particular experience we're having with our phones so problematic is that it's not just that we're distracted. I mean, yes, we have like all this information coming in. We have all these notifications. We have all these different apps that, you know, are calling for our attention at all times. It's actually that we crave this distraction. So it's not happening to us. And we're sort of like, hey, I don't really want this distraction. It's more we're leaning into distraction. We're getting as we're, we're trying to get more distraction. We crave it. We want it. We're addicted to it on some level. And so, you know, I think that's the crux of the predicament is that these technologies have been designed in such a way that they're exploiting the weaknesses of the human brain and keeping us coming back again and again for more. So some of the statistics here are kind of crazy. Nielsen reports that the average American spends about 11 hours a day on screens. 50% of adolescents describe themselves as having a significant addiction to their devices. And then there was this crazy series of studies. It was actually surveys where they asked people, you know, would you rather go for a month without your pet or your smartphone? 40% 40, 40 of people said they'd rather go without their pet so they could keep their phone. They asked a similar question, would you rather go for a month without your significant other or your phone? 44% of people chose their phone over their significant other. They asked, would you rather go without sex or without your smartphone? 56% of people said they'd rather go without sex than their phone. So I think those studies are interesting because they're pointing to what's happening to our priorities at an unconscious level. We are prioritizing these quick hits of dopamine that we get through our phones over some of the things that really should matter more, I think, and do matter more at a more conscious level to us, our family, our work, our friends, just being here in the present moment and experiencing what's happening right now. So, so I think that's the essence of the predicament. So, you know, obviously the book is called Open and Not Closed. And, and you know, we, we, could, we could spend a lot of time talking about the ways in which, you know, we can close off to things or the ways in which we could be closed-minded. But I think, uh, 
you know, people know know what it's like, know what closed mindedness is. And, and, and I think it's really important to talk about what openness is, what open mindedness is. So I think before necessarily like venturing for a, you know, a definition, but beyond the one, the kind of the, the one that you gave at the beginning, sort of, you know, are, are there any sort of key life experiences that led you to an interest uh, in developing to practice opening your mind? You know, what, what led you sort of down this road, uh, road of being interested in openness? Well, there was one experience in particular that comes up as being a pivotal moment in leading me down this path. It was several years ago. I was on a road trip with my family. We were staying at the Comfort Inn in Rollins, Wyoming. And I was lying on the floor because I had been doing yoga. And I was there because I had been experiencing tinnitus or ringing in my left ear for about 15 years. And for whatever reason, that summer, it started to get way worse. And so here I am doing yoga, trying to get rid of this ringing in my ear. And this is in the context of several months where I had really tried everything I could possibly try to get rid of this experience. You know, I tried supplements. I went to different doctors. I went to like an Ayurvedic healer. I was meditating. I was doing yoga. And this ringing sound was getting worse instead of better. And I think probably everyone has had a moment like this where all of your efforts to control something fail. And you have that moment of realization that maybe this is never going away. And for me, that was kind of the moment where I realized, wait a minute, I'm trying to get rid of this thing. I'm pushing against it. I'm creating all of this resistance. And what would happen if I were to change my strategy and just open to this sound that's happening in my ear? And so I was kind of, I played around with it that day. And then for the rest of the summer, I really started playing with this idea of what happens if I open to this ringing sound. And then I, I realized, you know, it didn't get rid of the sound, but it totally changed my experience. It lessened the suffering that was associated with that sound. And I started to realize that this wasn't just a cure for ringing ears or tinnitus, that for me, there are so many things in my inner world that I resist and push against emotions and thoughts. And that all of us have something like that ringing ear. And what would happen if we were to cultivate a practice that was really explicitly about moving toward, turning toward these things that can be somewhat uncomfortable? And so that really laid the groundwork for this project. And I started to wonder, first of all, what does it even mean to open? But second of all, how can we get really practical here? Like it's such an abstract idea, open. You know, what does that actually mean? But how can we get tactical and practical and, and find a set of practices that are going to create an alternative mindset or an alternative habit that really exists at more of a moment to moment level instead of just being this broad, big concept of open. So that's kind of the, the impetus for all of this. Yeah, one of the things that, that when people are, are trying to, uh, you know, open themselves up to something or change their, their perspective, you know, they, they turn to, to psychedelic drugs, uh, and, and this is something that you discuss in the book. I don't know if you could just discuss, you know, the benefits and the pitfalls of of using psychedelics as a way to open one's mind. Yeah, this is a huge question. Interestingly, I had no real intention of doing psychedelics or writing about psychedelics prior to this book. And in fact, if you look at the original proposal for the book, I don't mention them at all. I just thought that this was going to be a book about meditation and opening to political adversaries and things like that. I started though to see that if we're going to have a conversation around opening, we have to talk about psychedelics. And the reason for that is the advances in the science of psychedelic medicine and psychedelic assisted therapy over the last few years have been astonishing. And I came into this with a lot of fear and trepidation around psychedelics. So, you know, I had this cousin who about He's actually not a cousin. He's a, a family member, maybe second cousin, something like that. I had this experience where I remember he told me about taking LSD at a rock concert 30 years ago and how it had triggered this major depression for him. It was so disabling. He wasn't able to hold down a job for the rest of his life, essentially. And I'll never forget him telling me, you know, Nate, promise me you'll never touch this stuff. Right. And, and I think anybody who's been around the community of psychedelics knows that there are stories like this, 
where psychedelic experiences can trigger really intense psychosis and all sorts of uh, deep traumas and problems like that. So I was really quite afraid, but what opened me up to this was this really important distinction that I think sometimes gets lost in contemporary discussions of psychedelics. And that's the distinction between psychedelics, the compounds themselves, so things like LSD, psilocybin, ketamine, MDMA, and psychedelic-assisted therapy, where we're essentially pairing the compound with an intentional structure of support and integration. And so that was the moment for me where I thought, okay, that sounds really interesting, because it turns out that when you look at the research around bad trips and some of these negative effects that can happen, when you have a skilled guide and when you have a psychological evaluation beforehand and all of these pieces that are in place to de-risk the process, a lot of those risks start to fall away. And so for me, this was just like this wild, interesting exploration. And I'll, I'll just give you one anecdote about it. So I had experienced pretty significant flight anxiety for about 20 years prior to writing this book. And I tried all sorts of different things. You know, I would meditate during takeoff and landing every flight. And it never really changed my experience of that. But then I went into one of these ketamine-assisted therapy sessions, and it happened to be a couple of days before I was going to fly. So like flying was in the background of my mind somewhere. And I took the medicine, put on the eye mask and the earphones. And all of a sudden, I was like on a plane. You know, it wasn't a real plane, but in my mind, it felt real. And I'm flying and everything felt the same as flying in normal life, except for one thing. I, I was just like in love with airplanes. None of the fear was there. None of the, the trauma, the, the loops of catastrophic thinking, they were, it was just gone. And so I'm flying around the world and like the, you know, the sides of the plane are dissolving and it's just me in this seat flying around. And then they come back. All of a sudden the mood shifts and now I'm on this plane that's spiraling down to the ground at full speed. And I watch the plane crash. I watch myself like incinerated by this explosion. And it was one of the most beautiful things I had ever seen. You know, I, I think I said to the therapist, oh my God, like God is a plane crash. It's all so beautiful, right? It, in normal consciousness, none of this makes any sense, obviously. But what was happening there I came to find out as I looked into the science of psychedelics and particularly ketamine is that the acute effect of the drug was allowing me to essentially open to this memory or this set of, of emotions that's so triggering, I basically couldn't go there in ordinary consciousness. So I was able to go there, re-experience it with none of the fear, and then integrate that into my life. And what was really interesting is that in the aftermath of this, you know, I would still occasionally get some anxiety while I was flying. But what would happen is instead of having those loops of catastrophic thinking, my mind would somehow immediately go to that flight. I called it the Ketamine Express. And it just like radically changed my experience of this thing that had been really hard for me, really traumatic. And so I started to realize that we do need to take these things seriously. Yes, there are risks, but if done in the right context with the right approach, these kinds of compounds coupled with psychotherapy can be life-changing for some of us. I think the, um, the, the, the notion that you have to be in a different mindset in order to, to deal with something is interesting. It, I, I mean, it, it does echo, uh, even though it wasn't with psychedelics, but it kind of echoes your story about, about your ear pain. And, you right. know, having, having done yoga, you know, doing a, sometimes, you know, after doing a physical, after doing a physical activity, you know, I, I find myself in a different mindset where suddenly yeah. a task that seemed really difficult, like washing the dishes or taking out the trash suddenly becomes much easier because I did a few pushups. Um, so even something as simple as that can, can change mindset. Um, you know, totally. Uh, I think, uh, you know, something that, that, that I find really interesting because you, you, you really look at openness from so many different viewpoints, uh, point, you know, or you take on openness in, in so many different ways, uh, including this, this notion that I think a lot of people struggle with, which is openness to those of different political views. Um, and, you know, I was wondering if you could just talk about your own experiences with being open to people with different political views and, and how we can have more empathy for those who think differently or believe different things. Absolutely. Well, I think that 
we talked about closure before, and there's an important distinction between two kinds of closure that I think have captured the modern mind. The first is what we've been talking about, closing down to our own inner experience through things like screen addiction. But the second form of closure that I think is really important is this experience of closing down to people who hold different beliefs. And this is something that has changed radically, as we all know, in the course of our lifetime. So in 1980, I think it was about 47% of Americans felt warm and favorable toward the other party. In 2020, that number drops to 25%. If we were to do it again in 2024, which I think Gallup will, it'll probably go down to 20%. So something has fundamentally changed about the way we view the other or the other party or the other candidate. And so I really wanted to explore tools we can use, not just to open to our own mind, but to open to these people. And you know, these people are going to change depending on what side of this political spectrum you're on. But all of us have that other. And for me, just to give you a little bit about my context, I live in Boulder, Colorado, which is a very left-leaning enclave. I have a fear of guns. I am pro-gun control. We actually had a mass shooting here in Boulder a few years ago, which was terrifying. And so I thought it would be really interesting to immerse myself in an incredibly like pro-gun situation. So I found out that the National Rifle Association, the NRA, they do these trainings for getting your concealed carry permit. And so I ended up going to rural Colorado where I did this training to get a concealed carry permit for a nine millimeter handgun, essentially. And, and it, was, it was wild. I'll just give you one anecdote. Um, when I walked into this training, so it was in this big warehouse, I wore my Denver Bronco hat because we're here in Colorado. And I thought, well, everyone in Colorado can agree on our favorite sports franchise, the Denver Broncos. Like we, we can find common ground here. <clears throat> so one of the other women in the course walks in, she's got a Kansas City Chiefs jacket. I make a little joke about how like, I don't know if we can be friends. You know, you're wearing your Chiefs jacket. I have my Broncos hat. And her husband comes up to me and says, oh, you don't have to worry about that at all. We haven't watched the NFL in five years after the kneeling. And I'm like, the kneeling? Oh, Black Lives Matter, the kneeling, okay. Then our instructor pipes up. It's like, yeah, I haven't watched an NFL game in five years either because of the kneeling and the way they dealt with that. And so I, I felt this kind of shock. Like, we can't even agree on the Denver Broncos on a football team. How are we going to have a conversation here? So I ended up leaving the room and coming back in and... They're talking about, you know, how the right has all the answers and the right, you know, is the party of justice and freedom and America and all these things. And <clears throat> this gentleman turns to me and says, we probably shouldn't make assumptions here. What side are you on? And so I'm sort of standing there kind of taken aback by this whole thing. And I decide to just like lay it out there. And I say, well, you know, I'm on the side of being open to as many points of view as I can and something in the whole room changed. Like everybody's face lit up and everybody was like, yeah, we need to talk to each other. Why are we talking to each other? And so it was this amazing moment for me where I realized we can't agree on anything in our current political climate, except I think we can all agree that we should be talking to each other. And so, you know, the question then is like, how do we do that practically? One distinction that I offer in the book that I think is really useful is a distinction between engaging in political conversation from a strategic point of view or a strategic mindset where the motivation or the goal is to win, you know, to prove that your side is right and the other side is wrong and counter all of their arguments and, uh, you know, essentially win the debate. That's one mindset. I think that is the default mindset that we approach politics with in our culture. The alternative is a more open mindset where instead of having this intent to win, the intent is to understand, to actually listen. So that's what I tried to do that day. And, and it was incredible because I, I realized in the end that there is no enemy here, that we're all being fed radically different information that makes us think that the other person is somehow against democracy or against us or, you know, against America. But there really is this sense in which we're all humans. We're all struggling with similar things. 
we're all connected in various ways. So, so I think there is a pretty radical practice here, which is this kind of return to immersing oneself in the other side, real face-to-face -face conversation, getting out of the out of screen land, as I call it, and into real conversation. What I find also interesting is that your your approach to them asking you, you know, where do you stand, wasn't to say, well, I'm this and I don't agree with you with you guys and this is where I disagree. Right. Your approach was just to say, I'm open to to multiple points of view. Um and I right. think that that's a great that's a great way to open when you are talking to someone that you yeah. disagree with instead of leading with, okay, well, here's what we disagree on. It's leading with totally. well, I'm interested in what you have to say. Because people just want, yeah. oftentimes, just want to be, you know, want someone to hear what they have to say. Uh, exactly. Rather, and then they're and then they're willing to, you know, to to be to listen to to others. Yeah. Uh, but that yeah that that's an interesting, you know, I, I you know I wonder um you know if 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 people did that sort of thing you know how how that would change how people viewed each other but certainly, you know something like that as you said is probably probably frightening going into it. Yeah. And I would say that I'm not saying here that there's no role for strategic political interactions. I think we need that. We need debate. We need fierce criticism and argument on some level. But right now, it seems like that's the only thing happening in our culture, that we're so wildly out of balance toward that strategic side that we need to balance it out a little bit with actually listening and actually opening to the other side. And so that's why I think this could be a really interesting practice, especially in a year like 2024, an election year where we don't know what's going to happen, but I can almost guarantee you it's going to be very interesting and there's going to be a lot of closing happening throughout this next year. Oh, definitely. <laughs> uh, you know, to, to change gears just slightly, you know, because I, I think a big part of this book and a big part of, you know, what you do is is work in, in, with meditation. Uh, you practice and teach meditation. Uh, you know, I was wondering if you, if you could share a little bit about what someone might gain from a retreat or just simply learning to meditate, what that experience is like. Well, when it comes to opening, there are obviously these tools that can allow you to experience momentary flashes of a more open mind. We talked about psychedelics. You, know, you can get a, a really kind of big, expansive experience of opening that's very temporary through that. What I think is really interesting about meditation is that the goal here is to make these experiences more durable, to make them last longer, to make them into more like habits rather than these kind of interesting one-off experiences. And so when it comes to actually training the experience of opening or a more open mind or habits of the mind that are, that are more open to alternative points of view, more open to discomfort, et cetera, I don't, I think it's hard to find a better practice than meditation. You know, we have several thousand years of developing this practice in ancient wisdom traditions. We have about 20 or 30 years of really substantial neuroscience research on the benefits of meditation and the ways in which at, at the level of biology, you're actually opening up the mind. So I think it's a really powerful practice. The tricky thing with meditation is that it's much less pleasurable and exciting than being on our phone, as for instance. So, you know, if I were to pick up my phone right now, there's all sorts of interesting stuff there. I haven't checked the news yet today. I wonder what's there. And, you know, I'm sure there's something on Instagram that's interesting. There's probably a couple texts there, right? Like there's, there's all of these kind of like novel things lurking in the background of that experience. With meditation, on the other hand, I was just meditating before this interview, everything really kind of slows down. And there's a way in which it can actually feel kind of boring because you're just sitting there. Maybe you're focusing on the breath. Maybe you're watching sensations, right? Usually there's subject of concentration of some sort, but it's not the most exciting and interesting experience. So I think that can be a barrier for a lot of people. Another barrier for a lot of people is this thought that meditation should be about like turning off the mind and quieting the mind and silencing the mind. And I've been doing this practice for well over 15 years every day now. That really doesn't happen. I mean, it will in occasional moments, but but that's a trap because that experience of mind wandering is pretty constant for most of us, even while meditating. 
And so if we see meditation as a practice of like getting rid of that, we're always going to feel like we're failing. We're always going to be disappointed. So what it's really about, I think, is cultivating this perspective. It's often called meta-awareness, where we're able to see the contents of our own mind or see what's happening around us with a different kind of perspective. So we're a little bit more aware of what's happening. There's a kind of disidentification that happens between us and our emotions or us and our thoughts or that, you know, there's kind of like awareness and then what's happening in awareness. And we're seeing that distinction. And, and I think that is the thing that can really be gained through a regular meditation practice or through going on retreat. It's not getting rid of the bad things in our mind. So like the anxiety may still be there. The anger may still be there. The depression may still be there. But instead of seeing it as like attached to us, I am depressed, I am anxious, there's this subtle shift in perspective that says there is depression or there is anxiety or there is anger. Like it's it's arising in the mind. And I know that sounds subtle, but that space that we're creating in the mind is really like the whole ball game when you think about it. Like that's the space that allows us to respond instead of react. That's the space between stimulus and response. It's the space of creativity, of, of freedom, of having a choice about how we act and how we interact. So, so that's, I think, the, the promise of meditation, but it's often misconstrued. And I like to point out some of those myths around meditation because they can be really discouraging for some people, you know, this, this idea that you need to like clear your mind and not think and, and all of these other things. But, but that's, I think the, the goal in the practice. Yeah. I've been uh, meditating, not very consistently, but, you know, on and off having these, you know, brief spells of uh, meditating for, you know, months at a time for about eight, eight years or so. And I feel like the big, <laughs> I, you know, I, I noticed this, the, the benefits of it in very subtle ways. Like, for example, I went to, yeah. the, I, I, I went to, um, I had my, my annual doctor's checkup recently and I was sitting in the doctor's office waiting for the doctor, you know, I put on the, the gown and I was waiting for the doctor yep. to come in. And, you know, there's one part of me that just wants to pick up my phone and scroll. And another part of me is like, maybe I should just sit here and just be aware of my feelings of anxiety about, about what's going totally. on and try and try and, and I think it's like, you know, it only, it, it's like, I immediately thought about meditate. Like I was like, my medita yeah. it's doing meditation is what's telling me or making me feel, you know, it's those, in those like brief five minute moments that I notice it, not the, you know, when I, of course, when I first started, I thought that I would achieve enlightenment by my 10th session, um, but I've given up on that. I'm like, oh. Well, I think that's really cool because one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is that formal meditation is really cool. You know, when you're sitting there on the cushion and, and doing it in a way where you're removed from distraction. But I think what's even more interesting is what I call street opening or street meditation. And that's exactly what you're talking about. You're sitting on the exam room table. You don't have your phone. What does it look like to meditate on the anxiety of being there? Or you're about to get, you know, some sort of dental surgery and you're sitting back in the dental chair. What does it look like to turn that into your retreat center? You're sitting on the airplane. You know, what does it look like to turn that into your opportunity to meditate? I think there's so much room for really interesting experiences and, and I think like it may sound masochistic to do that, but what's going on in that practice is instead of checking out from those feelings, the anxiety, the stress, you're now checking in. And as a result, I think you can, you have this opportunity to re-experience what we might ordinarily, ordinarily see as something very uncomfortable or something bad with more of like this attitude of interest, like, oh, what does medical anxiety feel like? What does it feel like in my body? Where's it showing up? And what are the sensations? And so anyway, I'm glad you brought that up because I, to me, that's the most interesting practice. It's not like, can you do it at home for 10 minutes? You know, when you're sealed away from distraction every day, it's like, can you do it in the Uber? Can you do it at the grocery store in line? Can you do it in all these ordinary random throwaway moments of life? So how would, how would someone go about doing this? Because, you know, I think, um, Obviously, there's different types of of meditation, you know, sitting meditation, but I think most people have a decent sense of what that's like. You know, you you sit down, close your eyes, try and you know 
quiet, quiet the mind, focus on, you know, maybe a fixed point, uh, you know, something like that. Uh, how does someone go about doing a, a sort of a street opening as you described? Yeah. So as you're alluding to, there's a shift in the basic technique that you're employing there. So in many forms of meditation practice, when you're seated, formal practice, the technique is to close your eyes, have a single object of concentration. Maybe it's a mantra like TM, maybe it's the breath. That obviously isn't going to work very well if you're applying that to street meditation. You know, if you're walking through the grocery store and trying to keep your eyes closed and focus on your breath, you're probably going to trip and hurt yourself, hurt somebody else. <laughs> so, so that is not advisable. What we can do is we can shift the technique to be more applicable to those kinds of real life situations. So, you know, in the book, I talk about what I call open meditation, which is in some ways a derivative of Dzogchen and Mahamudra. Those are a couple of Tibetan practices. The basic idea is in this practice, we keep our eyes open, which makes sense, right? If we're going to be open, like let's also open to the visual field. Let's open to what's happening around us. So eyes are open and actually we can use concentration as a way to stabilize the mind. So we might start by focusing on the sensations of breath, but then the essence of the practice is really about dropping that technique and just allowing things to be as they are. So you're say walking through your local Walmart, through the aisles, you're seeing things in this more expansive kind of panoramic awareness. So that's something you can do right now, even as you're listening to this podcast, you can see what happens when you just allow the edges of your visual, visual field to expand slightly. So if you're walking through that Walmart, you can have this more expansive panoramic view, like you're walking through Walmart, but on a mountaintop. I know how paradoxical that sounds. And you can also just kind of relax into things as they are relax into the sound of the scanners at the front of the store, the weird music playing, you know, people shouting at the back of the store, whatever it might be, that becomes the practice of street opening is essentially just like allowing yourself to be with things exactly as they are, even if they're not super pleasant, even if the music is bad, even if the sounds are loud, even if the smells are weird, right? You're kind of just like, turning it all into your object of focus and concentration and, and not trying to change anything about it. I think, I think, you know, a sort of a common theme or something that, that I is just resonating for me as you're talking about that uh, is how important it is to, to kind of like let go of these things that we feel like we need to feel this certain feeling, or there's this certain in intensity uh, of, of, feeling that's guiding us in some direction and that it's it's a lot of, about just dropping that you know letting it uh you know letting whatever intense intense feeling like the desire to get rid of your ear pain you know letting go of that feeling and just seeing for a second you know what happens if i don't care about fixing this problem and then it almost allows you to fix it in this weird way so you know how and why should people practice letting go as you describe it yeah so letting go i I describe that as almost like the ultimate practice of opening. And it's really counterintuitive. It's really paradoxical when you start to investigate it deeply. One way I think about letting go is thinking about how it compares to other things that might happen in ordinary life. So let's just imagine you sit down at your computer and you're totally overwhelmed by the, the amount of messages in your email inbox. This is something that happens to me quite a bit. In ordinary life, you can kind of like control and grip and change your experience of something like that. You know, so for me, if I sit down and my inbox is really full, one of the things I like to do is just attack the inbox, like go through as many of the messages as I can, try to get to inbox zero, feel that like hit of, you know, completion that happens at the end of that. And, and that's the way a lot of life works. We can basically manipulate our life manipulate the things that are happening around us such that we feel like we can relax. So that's the strategy of control. And it works in a lot of life, but it really doesn't work very well in the inner realm of life. And I think we all know this on some level intuitively. Like if you have a thought in your mind that scares you and you adopt that approach, I'm just going to fight and resist against this thought and, you know, push it away as hard as I possibly can. You know, this kind of like very 
masculine pushing, forcing approach, it's really not going to work well. I can tell you that from personal experience. In fact, it's going to make that thought or that emotion way worse than it was before. <laughs> you know, if you feel anxiety and you try to violently oppose your anxiety, you try to wage a war against your anxiety, you're going to have so much more anxiety guaranteed, right? So, so something different is happening in our inner world. We have to start playing a different game if we want to open to these things. And that game is really about letting go and allowing some of these states to be as they are. That ends up being a much more skillful strategy. But it's also a really paradoxical strategy because in some ways it, it doesn't make any sense. You know, unlike training for a marathon or something where you can like create a routine and go running every day and do these tangible things and you're going to have enough fitness to run a marathon with letting go. It's not like you, you just can't use that same strategy. It doesn't work because that's the strategy of control. So the other extreme would be to say, well, okay, if there's nothing we can do to cultivate this experience of letting go, then maybe I'll just like hope it happens more. I think that strategy also isn't very skillful. The more skillful strategy, which is very subtle, is to say, well, we can't cultivate letting go on demand, but maybe we can cultivate the ground for letting go such that it arises more frequently in our life. And I think that's probably the, the best strategy here. And there are a number of things we can do to cultivate the ground so that we have this experience more regularly. So one that I talk about a lot is relaxation, which you know, is kind of a weird concept in our contemporary Western culture. It's really frowned upon on some level. But I think a prerequisite to having this experience of letting go is to calm down the nervous system enough so that you actually can relax into some of these states. So things like yoga, extended exhale breathing, I mean, there are all sorts of really powerful techniques here. That's a, a powerful thing. But then I think there's also just a practice of cultivating some form of trust or faith. So in the book, I talk about the practice of asking for help in those moments where you realize your power to control the situation or your mind or whatever it is, is completely beyond you. There's something really powerful about just like cultivating this, this ability to let go in the sense of, of asking for, for some sort of help or guidance or assistance. And that's where I think we start to drift into more mystical experience, but, but I think it's a really powerful concept and one that, that there's a risk here of viewing it in a very cliche way, like, oh, just let go. What does that mean? Right. So, so I, I think there's a, something way deeper here and, and really that this is the essence of what it means to open is to cultivate that state of allowing and just being able to relax into whatever's happening, even if it's not what you want to have happen. You know, as we go through life, obviously, like, like you say, you know, there can be things that are extremely overwhelming. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, maybe people that, that we disagree with, but, you know, we still want to open to, but there's also reasons sometimes that we shouldn't be open to everything. You know, as you, as you said, for some people, you know, like your family, uh, you know, like your relative at, at a rock concert, you know, openness to doing, you know, the drugs around him was, was not a good decision. Uh, sometimes it's good to say no to, you know, to, to someone, some, a stranger at a show. <laughs> so, you know, when should we avoid openness and embrace skillful closing as you, as you put it in the book? Yeah. So I think there's a really interesting distinction there, as you put it, like on one level, I mean, opening is great and we could get lured into this idea that, well, we should just now open to everything. Um, and one of the things I talk about in the book is this experience I had where I had a major dental surgery and I decided, Hey, maybe this is a good opportunity for me to really explore opening. So I convinced the dentist who was removing a bunch of gum tissue from my mouth and grafting it onto the bottom of my mouth. I convinced him to do this surgery with no sedation. I was just going to meditate through it. And I did make it to the end of this three-hour procedure by meditating. So in one sense, it worked. But in the other sense, it was horrendous. Like it was just a horrifying experience on many levels. 
And after the fact, I had this moment where I was reflecting on it and I thought to myself, it would have been better for me, for my daughter who saw me come out of that office, for the dentist, for the world, had I just made the decision like, I'm going to close to this experience. I'm going to take the sedation cocktail. And I, I think that's a really extreme example, but I think we all have examples of this running in our life where we might try to sort of overdo opening and not see that there's like, there, there's a better path for us. There's a better path for our families. There's a better path for the world by just simply closing. And I think this often arises with extended family members. You know, sometimes the most skillful thing to do is to set a boundary in a relationship. And that means you're not opening to them. This might also arise with, you know, your work or something like that, right? Like you could say like, hey, open to your 90 hour a week job that's crushing you, that's causing you to burn out, just open to the burnout. You know, it's all good, right? But I think that might not be the most skillful course of action. You may reach a point where it's actually more skillful to close in some way. So, so the, yeah, I think there's an important nuance there. And I bring that up in the book because I don't want people to see this as this kind of like naive concept of like, yeah, we're just going to go out there, you know, open means like leaving the doors to your house unlocked, like leaving the keys in the ignition when you go to the grocery store of your car, letting the world just completely walk all over you. <laughs> that is not at all what, what we're trying to do here. We're trying to cultivate more of an ability to sort of be with our own mind, to open to our own inner states, maybe to open at times to people who disagree with us politically. But that doesn't mean we can't set boundaries. That doesn't mean we can't close. And just to try to make this a little bit more concrete, the, the principle here that I think is, is important, I distill it down to this, open unless it's more loving to yourself and others to close. So sometimes it really is more loving to close down whatever that means, set a boundary, not go to that thing, not talk to that person, not, not experience that emotion. I mean, when it comes to difficult emotions, yes, it can be really powerful to open to these states, but sometimes they're so traumatic that in that moment we're feeling them, it's better to close down. It's better to go on Instagram. And that's not to say we can't ever open to those states. Maybe we can, but we might need way more support you know, a therapist, coach, something like that to help us open to those states. You know, I, I think uh, yeah, the, the framework you provide, it's a kind of like a, you know, a, in a way that an individual can use a lot of, um, you know, therapies that might be used for like the treatment of like OCD or, uh, you know, fear, you know, different, different anxieties and fears, sort of exposure therapies. And that's certainly a thing where it's like people with exposure therapy, it's like, you know, they have to be in the right state in order to do the exposure because otherwise you're going to set someone back 10 steps uh, instead of actually helping them overcome whatever it is that's, that's scaring them. Well, yeah, to your point, it's a dosing problem or a yeah. question of how much of a dose of this difficult, uncomfortable thing can you give yourself such that you're still able to deal with it skillfully. You know, if you're terrified of flying and you get on a plane and you go around the world for 20 hours, that dose might be too much. <laughs> Maybe right. it'll be like this amazing awakening experience. You'll never feel fear again, but most likely that's too big of a dose. So yeah, you want to think about like, how do you dose out these experiences in such a way where you can handle it and grow from it without, as you say, being set back? It, it, you know, in the conclusion, you pr present a series of toolkits to practice mindfulness, reduce distractions, you know, open to people of different viewpoints. Uh, you know, is there, are there, is there one or maybe a couple pieces of advice just for this podcast? Obviously don't want to give the whole conclusion yeah. away because uh, people should definitely check out and see, because you, you have, you really do have a lot of tips and tools that people can actually use in their life. But you know, are there one or two that you think that people listening to this might find particularly effective and actionable? Yeah, I would point to two things. The first is there's a category of tools that I call system reset tools or habit interrupts. And I think that these are really useful to think about as you're thinking about like, okay, how do I interrupt the momentum of closure in my life? How do I open a little bit more? Well, all of that is happening against a backdrop of a lifetime of habits that are running in the background. 
habits around how you use your devices, habits around how you think, habits around the kinds of practices you do. So the idea of a system reset is to do something that has the power of kind of like disrupting that ordinary momentum of, of the habits running in the background, or maybe not even just disrupting, maybe it's making you more aware of the habits that are running in the background. So some examples here, we talked about psychedelic assisted therapy. This is a really powerful way of disrupting ordinary habits of thinking and opening up windows of neuroplasticity. That may not be for everybody. So there are things like going on a meditation retreat, even just going on a silent retreat where you don't have your phone for a few days or a week, that has a sort of disruptive effect. So the first thing I would think about is like, okay, how can I kind of reevaluate, disrupt, become more aware of my existing habits that keep me tethered to these kinds of tools of closure? The second thing I would think about then is like, okay, once there's a little bit of disruption, picking a habit that cultivates this experience of opening that resonates with you in some way. So I hesitate here. I mean, I could say like meditate every day. Well, maybe that's going to work for some people. Maybe it's not. My wife, for example, she's been doing this kind of work for 20 years, but she hates meditation. So it's just not a good tool for her. But I would say explore the different tools that are available. Things like yoga, things like meditation, things like different kinds of breath practices mindset tools, things like that. And I have a lot of them outlined in the book and identify one of these tools that really resonates with you, that kind of meets you where you're at in terms of your own constitution, your what you're looking to do, and see if you can really build that as a new habit in your life. I think that that's, that's like the, the best we can do is, is disrupt some of those habits happening in the background, cultivate some new habits, and then, you know, there is this moment to moment practice that we talked about of just noticing when you're in line at the grocery store, noticing when you are sitting at a stoplight, noticing when you're in traffic, whatever it is, and seeing if you can turn those moments into opportunities to be just a little bit more open to whatever's happening around you. And I think in some ways that is the the ultimate practice, but having a regular habit will help you see that that practice is a possibility more often. Like it, it generates a kind of momentum that allows that organic experience of opening to happen more frequently throughout your day. Well, Nate, I think you've, uh, you know, you've really in this book pulled together a lot of things. It's very, you know, readable and it's, 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 uh, it's not, it's certainly not, not a preachy book by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and I think like your, you know, your own background and experience, uh, you know, the stories that you have in it, you know, really help to connect readers to to the some of the the things that you advocate for in the book. Uh, you know, I want to thank you for for being guest on the New Books Network. The the book is open, living with an expansive mind in a distracted world, and uh, the the book is uh, out in in mid February. If I'm uh, if yeah, I February thirteen, it's out. Uh, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Caleb. I really appreciate the conversation.